coffee. I don't know if you saw this over here, but it's it's a miraculous arrangement of flavors and different kinds of milks. Thanks to Mary. Thanks. Thank you, Mary. Thank you. And there is a piggy bank there for, you know, piggy bank reasons. Um, so, I just want to say how grateful I am with this community. You guys are awesome, and I love having you in my life. Next week is Eastside Academy, and it's the day before Valentine's Day, hence the blood red questions for next week. Right? Um, and then Charles, thank you, Charles, sent out an email. Um, suggesting cards and maybe a little bit of candy, nothing big for your kids at your table. Um, thank you for that. Um, Cheryl, do we need any more help with people bringing things in or working on name tags that got covered? Well, um, let's see. Tables seven and eight are scheduled to do Okay, seven and eight are scheduled for seven. Oh, right, because eight, table eight and 10 have come together. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we can use some extra volunteers. All right, so if you see people scrambling, or uh, if you want to volunteer to set up, check with Cheryl on the way out. Thank you. All right, thank you. Two months. Okay, I love the Valentine's potluck. Kids are always so excited. So today, we're looking at three vignettes from David's story. Big events happen in all three chapters. Um, and I'm gonna spend a lot of time on the first of the three chapters just because it's got some confusing stuff in it. Um, this first chapter is the story of Saul and witchcraft. Then we look at David's being rejected by the Philistine leaders and what happened to him after. And last, we're going to see David in first responder action. We learn the depth of his character today, as well as the depth of Saul's depravity. So let's get started. Samuel has died. We're going to have to figure out why 2 Samuel is called that when the titular character dies at the end of the first. But we'll get there, right? I mean, it's like naming the Scottish plate Duncan. It doesn't make sense to me. Thank you, literary folks. Anyway, Samuel's passed away. Israel mourned, and he's buried at Ramah. But Saul still needs Samuel. Saul doesn't have a connection to God without Samuel. Saul is looking for purpose, he's looking for power, and he's looking to continue his divine right as king. Good luck with that, Saul. <laughs> Saul knows full well that God doesn't want us interacting with the dead. We're not very far into the story of scripture, and we've already got re reminders not to participate in this stuff, right? So, 1 Samuel is not very far, and already there have been all these reminders, all of these verses, talk about not dealing with witchcraft, not dealing with necromancers, not dealing with mediums. Um, don't get into it. Leviticus is all over it. God takes this subject seriously, as should we. Now, Saul had taken it seriously too. We learned in verse three that he had kicked all the mediums and necromancers out of the land. So that's his official proclamation. But what's going on now? Here's Saul encamped at Mount Gilboa, right? So Saul and his Israeli army are here. And, uh, where am I? Saul's feeling pressed. He doesn't know where David is, 
But he's probably aware that David is among the Philistines somewhere, who were here at Shunem. Um, so he's freaked out because not only are the Philistines coming, but he thinks David is among them. And he's already heard a few times Saul has killed his, right? Thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. Yeah, he knows who he's up against, the reason he's been trying to kill him. He's praying to God, using all the legitimate sources for divining God's will, but God is silent. God will not answer him. So he gets sneaky. He asks his servants to sneak out and find him a medium. And one is known to be at Endor. I found a picture of Endor. <laughs> thank you, thank you, moviegoers. And I figured this must be the witch, right? <laughs> I love the Ewoks, they're my favorite. Anyway, so here's, here's something closer to what we're actually looking at. The witch of Endor. Um, I like this image. She's done the work that we read in the passage, but she's clearly not comfortable with what she's conjured, right? She doesn't like the power of the image she's conjured. She doesn't like that she's doing this for the king who has already threatened to kill her for doing what she's doing, not directly, but his proclamation has. Bad situation for her. She doesn't want to do it because such things have been banned by the man who's asking for it, but she agrees because he shows that he's powerful. He's got a lot of energy, Saul does. I mean, he was made king because he seemed kingly. He's the kind of guy you obey. You know who these people are, people with presence, people you cower in front of. It's confusing for her, but she conjures Samuel, who I'm imagine, I imagine held enough of the presence of the Lord in his residual image, however you want to call it, that she refers to him as a god. Samuel doesn't give Saul even one shred of new information about what Saul's looking for. He just repeats the same prophecy he'd given him before, with the tag on of, you and your sons will be with me tomorrow. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in this scene, right? Um, let's start with witchcraft. Now, don't raise your hand, but I bet if you look around your table, you can nod at each other. How many of you pretty much don't believe in witches and ghosts? Really just don't believe in it. Okay. I bet a fair few of you were told as youngsters something along the lines as, of, there's no such thing as ghosts. Witches are just magicians, or they're crazy people, right? Somewhere along those lines. And I'm sure that some of you were told as children not to have anything to do with the occult. Of course, then some of you heard that and then spent your youth playing with Ouija boards and tarot cards, right? <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of laughter and recognition there, you naughty kids. Well, um, I believe that this is no small issue. Really. Now, I spoke on this a little bit once before. We talked about Halloween and how for a while Christians didn't celebrate Halloween, some certain Christians. My family never stopped because we won't live in fear and we're not going to be afraid of a day when we get to dress up and play in costumes. We do not spend our Halloween conjuring the dead. That wouldn't be okay. There is a line, right? Okay. 
In missiology, when you study that, such as the Perspectives on the World Christian Movement class that just ended here um, a month ago and will be offered again eventually and is offered around Puget Sound, if you're ever interested in completely changing the way you understand God um, in a good way. In missiology, you eventually come across the concept of the excluded middle. I know I've mentioned it before, but I want to go into it a bit here because this is why it's talked about in Scripture. This is why we have a chapter in the Old Testament about the witch. I think why it's there for us. Saul is not hallucinating, and this story does belong in the Bible. You don't have to look very far in missionary stories to find lots of stories about this sort of thing. Interactions with spirits, demons, witch doctors, and shaman. Um, you may be tempted to explain it away, but consider Western civilization is the only one that believes in this idea, that there is a physical realm which is completely separate from the spiritual realm, that ne'er the twain shall meet, right? But that is a new idea, started by platonic dualists in the 17th and 18th century, not with swords, duality, dualists. Because of this separation, we tend to view the spiritual realm in mystical terms and the physical or empirical world in naturalistic terms. Right? How often on the internet today do you see somebody say, I don't believe in God, I believe in science? That comes from this thinking. Um, we have excluded the middle, which the rest of the world sees and expects. And this is the area where the supernatural interacts with the natural world. As you can imagine, the Enlightenment, this Enlightenment kind of thinking, really gets in the way of cross-cultural ministry sometimes. We come off as being a different kind of uneducated to those who recognize this middle. So in the middle, in religion, we have faith, miracles, otherworldly problems, you know, salvation, and the sacred. In the scientific world, we, we go by sight and experience, opposite of faith, right? Blessed are those who believe without seeing. Science, the natural order, this worldly problems, environmental issues, and the secular. But there is a middle there where the two mix. At a very basic level, Christians can be in favor of saving the earth as best we can, of shepherding it, right? But it gets deeper than that. The spirits are all around us. We even talk about it. The folks in the Bible did not recognize a divide between the two at all. They didn't know it at all, which is why we have all those restrictions against mediums and necromancers all through Leviticus. I found understanding this difference to be really helpful in dealing not only with people from different cultures, but I believe that it's enriched my faith a lot. For one thing, it's changed my understanding of what it means to have a great cloud of witnesses. I don't see a great, the great cloud of witnesses as some stratus cloud stretching out at 60,000 feet or higher, like you see on a sunny day, right? That's not our great cloud of witnesses. It's, I think, more like the clouds we have here most of the time, mist around you, in and around you. I think that's why, um, in fact, many Catholics will pray to saints. 
because they feel that closeness with them in a way that we, who have this more distinct separation, don't. And I know that that kind of thinking about the great cloud of witness actually helps um, evangelists in Buddhist contexts often. Um, I have a story I want to read to you here, which is only slightly related to the actual story of our scripture, but I think it's an example of a place where a missionary interacts with someone who's into witchcraft and what kind of an impact that can have. And I think it has relation also. I chose this story not so much because it's related to the story from our, our text, but because I think it makes the bridge too applicable to our lives, where we don't necessarily interact with um, witchcraft per se, but we interact with cultures that are super different from our own. Um, this story is about 12 years old, maybe 15. And it's, I have not met this person, but I have friends who know him. After I'd served as a missionary in Papua New Guinea, so he's on the other side of the island from where we were, um, for two and a half years, my friend Samuel, a new believer, became sick. I walked over several mountain ridges through a forest trail to visit him in his village. On my way there, I crossed paths with a man coming from the other direction, and we greeted one another. When I reached Samuel's home, we talked and prayed. He said, I really needed your encouragement today. The chief witch doctor from this area was just here. When Samuel described the man, I knew it was the same man I'd passed on the trail. I walked home past some houses where several men were sitting and talking. We exchanged greetings. I recognized the witch doctor, so I said to him, Samuel doesn't need you. He's trusting in God for his healing. You stay away from him. Then I turned and continued home. I didn't get very far before the Holy Spirit said to me, what was that? <laughs> I'm trying to look out for Samuel, I said. That is no way to treat a human person, he said. Yeah, but he's a witch doctor, I replied. And the Lord said, I love that man. I turned around, went back, and sat with the men to talk for a little while. They were understandably guarded. When I gave them my name, they refused to tell me theirs. Finally, I said to the witch doctor, I came back because God told me he was disappointed with how I spoke to you. I want to apologize for greeting you with disrespect. I hope you will accept my apology. The witch doctor accepted. We continued talking. I asked him where he lived, and he described a place on the other side of the mountain along a trail I walked often. You know, you mean that corner with the house of the guy who killed his wife recently? I asked. I was shocked when he jumped to his feet and loomed up over me with his fist clenched and screamed, I did not kill her! Oops. Unsure of what to say next, I looked up at him and asked, oh, what did happen to her? He said that she had hung herself. Do you know why she hung herself? I wanted to know. But she died, right? The witch doctor sat down to explain that they had argued, and on such occasions, he was admittedly rough with her. As a result, she'd taken her own life. So maybe you were responsible for killing her, I ventured carefully. That began a sincere conversation between us about how we treat other people, which seemed to be the topic of the day. After several hours of conversation, it was time for me to go home. The witch doctor offered to walk me back. I didn't know if it was a good thing to walk alone through the forest with this man who was a witch doctor and I had just spoken so harshly with. But we talked all the way to my house, and when we said goodbye, he turned to say to me, 
My name is Yvonne. This was an admission of trust. Witch doctors often will go by a pseudonym and refuse to give their real name in order to protect themselves from those who might combine magic and their name to do them harm. I thank Yvonne for telling me his name and told him, I'm going to pray to God for you. His parting words were, I was afraid you'd say that. <laughs> Yvonne and I gradually became friends. I learned a little about witch doctors from him. For instance, the desire for power is what attracts people to practice magic in Papua New Guinea. They often start out seeking power for the benefit of others, to heal the sick and the dying, to bring fertility, or to improve their crop yields. But gradually, the power corrupts them. It becomes about helping oneself and gaining more power, my precious. He didn't say that. I just always think that when I read that part of the story. One day, I asked Yvonne when he was going to seek the real power, referring to Jesus Christ. It fascinated him to hear that there was another power, greater than any power he'd known. I invited him to a tent meeting with people gathering from all over the area. However, the same night that the revival was scheduled to start, a sing-sing, which is a magical all-night ritual, had been planned. It was a sort of a summit for the witch doctors in the area. That's why, when the revival began, Yiba was not among the attendees. And this is where a willingness to see that middle comes into play. However, partway through the service, Yibop burst into the tent, rushed to the front, and sat in the front row. The speaker gave a straightforward gospel message, and Yibop was the first one to come forward and give his life to Jesus. It was only later that he told us about what had happened in the forest. Might remind you of Sunday scripture, if you were here at Bell Prez on Sunday. He had packed up all of his ritualistic materials, tools, and clothes, all of them, as were needed to go to this kind of a meeting, the Sing Sing. Through the black silhouettes of the tree branches against the twilight sky, Yibat suddenly saw a white, hot, dazzling light descend onto the path in front of him. Now, you have to picture the jungle at night before electricity. Think about how dark that is, right? If you've ever stayed in a tropical place and been out at night, you know how dark that is. The light descended into the path in front of him, and from the light, a voice commanded, Yiba, go back. The frightened witch doctor threw down all that he was carrying, which is all of his worldly possessions associated with magic, and ran back the way he'd come, all the way to the tent meeting, where he joined our service and project and left his magic rituals forever. Yiba was instantly transformed. His heart was changed, yet like any new believer, his habits and his way of thinking and seeing the world were renewed gradually through discipleship and growing his relationship with Jesus. He often shared his testimony with others, and we saw God working through him to reach other witch doctors. After we left the field, more of Yibop's former colleagues gave up the practice of magic to accept Christ. Each of them, in turn, would share with another former colleague. It was a re revival that spread not through one dramatic service or gathering, but person to person, until, in all, about a hundred witch doctors believed in Christ and gave up their arts. Excuse me. What had interested them was the idea that there was a God with greater power than they had originally recognized. A power rooted not in self-interest, but in humility, in being poured out in love for others. The Lord taught me much about respecting people different from me and valuing them the way he had valued them. I learned to see them as persons that could be redeemed and become disciples of Jesus, 
Every person can become Christ-like through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Pretty cool story, right? I don't know if it would have happened the same if Jeff had not had the same understanding of the reality of the world versus the framework that we Westerners have imposed on it. Talk more about that with you if you want to separately. Hopefully that clears up a little bit for you how it is that there's a ghost in this chapter. It's because the world is not just two things, physical, spiritual. Both are there. Okay, I believe this story belongs in the Bible. It's included, maybe, just for us post-enlightenment kids, so that we don't get lost in our self-righteousness, if we're looking closely. Saul had been fasting, though perhaps in fear rather than as a planned thing. It's difficult to know. And this facing a dead Samuel was a tough thing. He had been so desperate to hear from the Lord that he broke his own promise to God in order to get some kind of connection. Isn't that twisted? We just twist ourselves, don't we? When we don't know what's going on and we want to know. The medium feeds him and his guys, but there's no hope in Saul as he leaves. He knows that tomorrow he dies. Next week for us. But, you know. Okay, let's turn to chapter 29 now. We've left Saul despondent in his disobedience, and now we're going to check in with dear old Dave. David is still hanging out with Akish, the Philistine commander. Akish is ready to bring David along into battle. After all, David's been hiding out from Saul in his column to be king with Akish for nearly four years now. Akish trusts David. He's proven himself to be a faithful servant to the household. But the other Philistine commanders, they don't really trust David, right? They don't necessarily want him to be dead, but they don't want to be in battle with the guy who killed Goliath and so many other Philistines. They're sensible, really. Akish says all sorts of nice things to David, but in the end, he sends him packing along with his troops. This is significant for a couple of reasons. This is the turning of the tide for David. David's returning to God, as we see in the next chapter, but it's also significant here because two things God does by causing the Philistines not to allow David to go into battle. First, David ends up not going into battle against his own people, his future subjects. Think about how big that is, really, for David. He doesn't know it yet. By having Akish and the Philippine high Philistine excuse me, high command reject him, he's actually protected from turning his own future subjects against him. His righteousness as their future king is protected. Um, and here's one spoiler alert for chapter 31, which Kristen will cover next week. Uh, spoiler, David is uh, far from Saul when Saul, Jonathan, and the rest of Saul's boys are killed. He has a great alibi. He's not even close. David heads back to Ziklag. Oh. So the battle's up here. David and his guys are heading way back down here back to where their families are. Okay. God was watching out for David in this moment, even when David is feeling so lost. So now we follow David into chapter 30, while Akish and Saul wander off into chapter 31. <coughs> David has been rejected by the Philistines, having run from his own people. He had settled in Ziklag, down there, 
and had just traveled back there from up near Mount Gilboa and Shunem, no small distance. In fact, it was three days' ride for him and his men. And they find destruction. The Amalekites had raided while the men of Ziklag were off with David. What am I doing? Checking the time. Good. Um, think about this. David's men had followed him up to Shunem, ready for battle, hung out for a long time, a couple of days, only to be rejected and sent home. So they're already likely upset, the men are. Either they're upset at David for dragging them away from their home for no reason, they're not going to get any spoils, right? Or they're upset on David's behalf because they love this leader who's just been rejected by the man he's been serving for four years. So the crowd is already grumbling for whatever reason. Now they get home and they find their city burned, their village burned. Their homes are gone, their wives and their children and their livestock are gone. Whew, that's a real gut punch. I was thinking, this is what David looked like. I don't know who you are, but I will find you and I will kill you. Which is what he gets to, but that's not where he starts. He starts with weeping. With his men. His wives are missing. And then, in verse 6, he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And now, he's ready to go all the Neeson on them. David returns to God, redevotes himself to pursuing God's will. And this is that turning point. For four years, he's known what was going on, he's known what God was calling him into, and has avoided it. Run from Saul, from the possibility of being killed, even though if he trusted the Lord, he would know it wasn't going to happen. He strengthens himself in the Lord, as we're reminded in Ephesians 3.16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And that's beginning here with David. He begins to believe in who he is in God. David weeps, but he turns to God in prayer and in worship. So David asks Abiathar to pray and to prophesy. And Abiathar says, God says, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake, and you shall surely rescue. Whew. After the gut punch of showing up there already disappointed, that probably felt pretty great. Abiathar says, go get him, David. I've got your back. Love God. <laughs> it's a little Valentine heart for David. Right? As they pursue the Amalekites, they come across an Egyptian out on the desert. I love how God does stuff like this, right? An Egyptian slave of an Amalekite wasn't keeping up, and so his owner left him in the desert to starve. Three days, no food, no water. They give him water and a couple of Fig Newtons, or maybe one of those new granola bars that are like three egg whites, two figs, and four nuts, something like that. I mean, it's that kind of food, right? Israeli pemmican. Anyway, they saved the life of a slave to the Amalekites, and because of this, they now have a guide who can take them straight to the Amalekite camp. No wasting time looking around. They came upon the Amalekite camp where there's an all-night party going on. We got their women, we got their stuff, we got their sheep. And here we are. The book translates, translates the attack as twilight, but the word that's used there could just as easily be translated as dawn. 
And that seems a little more likely. Um, it seems like, as I'm reading the critics, not critics, anyway. Um, it's likely that they attack at dawn. Beating the Amalekites back just as the sun was setting that evening, because um, it was, probably took the day. The timing of this is amazing, really. Sent away by the Philistines, David arrived just in time to find his family gone and his village burned. But they must have been close on the heels of their enemies because they're already celebrating, but they haven't damaged any of the property yet. That's how we're going to talk about the wives at the moment. Um, things haven't gotten really worse for the hostages yet, except that they've had to take a long walk and been terrified, of course. Um, and when they recover everything, nothing is missing. Well, that's a miracle right there. The chapter ends beautifully with David extending grace. Because back when they'd set out to rescue their wives and children, they kind of came to a stream that they had to cross. And apparently some of the men were so exhausted from the three days coming back from the Philistines that they were like, you know what? I'm just done. I can't. I'm just going to stay here where there's water. Do what you're going to do. Whatever. Um, the men who go with David and who attack the Amalekites and rescue everyone, some of them are like, why would we share with you? People, you didn't have the strength, you didn't have the energy, you couldn't bother yourselves to come with us. Um, David's men don't want to share the spoils with those who stayed behind, but that's not what David says. He includes them in the spoils, share and share alike. He gives grace. Here's grace and here's mercy. And that's where we end today, with grace and with mercy. Not only for those tired fellows, but for the people of Israel spread out across the Fertile Crescent. All the places that David had roamed get swag from this hall, from the Amalekites, right? Because they didn't just take their own stuff back. They wiped the Amalekites out um, took all their stuff. David sends gifts to all the people that have shielded him for the last four years. Spreading it out. He's building goodwill for his kingdom before he even becomes king. By giving grace to those tribes. In, in gratitude to God. Grace and the gifts of God. Okay, and that's where we're going to leave it this week. Tune in next week when Kristen will take on all the gory details of what happens in the song.